to the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Michelle Redfern. In this first season, not just a statistic, I'm bringing you the stories of women in sport from career start to the boardroom. Every episode is with an amazing woman from a range of different sports and a range of different positions in sport. And every episode is going to give you some actionable insights as a sports fan, as a member, as an administrator, as a leader to take action on how to close the leadership gender gap in sport. I hope you enjoy the episode. The Advancing Women in Sport podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wadawurrung, Wurundjeri and Boon people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present for they hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and the hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across this nation. We also pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. In today's episode, I interview Lisa Alexander, who is a former athlete and coach of Australian netball. She played for the Victorian State Netball Team and coached the Australian National Netball Team, the Diamonds, from 2011 to 2020. Lisa has seen gold and silver medal success at the Commonwealth Games and the Netball World Cup, and she has seen multiple wins at the Constellation Cup and Quad Series. Lisa is now working as Performance Director and Coach at London Pulse Vitality Netball Super League in the UK, where she leads performance performance strategy and overseas player transition from performance pathway to elite. Lisa also sits on the board of the Victorian Institute of Sport as a performance and coaching expert. In this episode, Lisa calls for transparency and equity in pay, particularly in the areas of sport paid for out of taxpayer dollars, as well as transparency in the criteria and credentials for positions across the sporting industry. Lisa also promotes targets and suggests that community sports redirect funds to support the community and the sport rather than to hefty player payments. Enjoy the episode. So Lisa, here we go. A, a conversation about women in sport, of course, which which you are. And um, so this series is all about from the field, the court, the pool, right through to the boardroom, the experiences of women in sport. So for you, well, your career has been in sport your entire life. Now, I know you've had other careers and you continue to have other careers, but your your career has been dominated by or characterised by sport. So why? Where did it all start? And and I, I think particularly what, what motivated you to move from athlete into coaching, administration, um, et cetera. So give us a bit of a, a bit of a bio. Look, I when I think of sport, I just think of Shane Gould um, in the 1972 Munich Olympics. And I was very fortunate we had a backyard pool. It was a four-foot, one of those four-foot-high pools that were put in the backyard. It wasn't an in-ground one. And I just swam every day and just pretended I was Shane Gould doing all this. The thing that most impressed me about it was all the strokes she could do. So, And at the time I was teaching myself to swim because I didn't have swimming lessons like my elder siblings. And I was a bit of a fish in the water and I loved it. And Shane was my hero and will always be. Although I have to say Emma McKeon pretty much nearly eclipsed that at the last Olympics. So um, pretty impressive. And, and of course, Kate Campbell winning that relay. I just was in, I was bawling my eyes out. So was my husband. And we were just so relieved for Kate to get that gold medal and get that burden off her because she's such a fantastic representative of Australian sport and, and also swimming. So, and her journey's been hard and tough along the way and she optimizes everything about I think particularly people coming into Australia from other countries and accepting 
the way of life that we have as well as staying true to themselves and and just excelling it's it's inspiring mm. inspiring that's, that's the yeah, whole thing isn't 15. it yeah. jane was 15 yeah. like that was yeah <laughs> bizarre it, she was so young and she's standing up on that podium and i was pretending i was up on the podium and the greatest thing of all time was singing the national anthem for me and it was god save the queen in those days it was <laughs> and so it's really bizarre when we play england in netball and you know, you're on the transverse line and they're singing that and it's quite funny. And, of course, I know the New Zealand anthems off by heart because we played them so many times. So when I did finally get that opportunity to stand on the transverse line that first time in that first test match in Newcastle, oh, it was a big moment just because mm. that was something I dreamt about since I was a little girl. So to get to do it as a coach was pretty, pretty special. So you were always, you you had a very clear pathway in mind in terms of, you know, playing and of course, netball, um, athlete into coach, into administration. So is that correct? Or you say no, it wasn't. I think I was just a sporting nut. I love mm. Australian rules football. The VFL, we had a St Kilda footballer boarding with us, Glenn Elliott at the time. He's a great sentiment for St Kilda and they played in the 71 grand final and I cried and because we lost. But his influence was very strong because he was combining academia. He was going to Monash University and combining that with his football and he trained really hard. He was one of the first kind of footballers that really took to physical conditioning and so observing that and you know I looked up to Glenn a lot he won Kazali awards back in the day and I took them to school and so he's he had a a profound influence on me at the time and also just mucking around at the my my father was president of West Bentley Cricket Club so we were at the cricket club all the time so I was forever mucking around there you know chasing whatever, playing chasey, playing cricket. I could bowl well, I could bat well. I was only ever invited into the double wicket games on picnic days. There was never a thought to have a women's cricket team. So Mm. I could probably beat most of the boys in the team there. But that was just the way it was. I played softball. I love my softball. That's why I was so into watching them at the Olympics. I was a catcher. and So was I. There you go. Another thing we've got in common. (laughs) Yeah, catcher and sometimes played shortstop. But I love the game and I also absolutely loved just anything to do with the beach and surfing and swimming. Swimming was very important to me too. I think for a number of reasons, I just think it helped elongate my career as well. At the end of the day, I was a very good swimmer, loved the surf. When, When we could get there, loved the beach because uh, I lived in Cheltenham, so there wasn't much surf around, so we had to travel. And I went on, you know, boogie boards and surfboards when I was the true puberty blues girl hanging around the boys, although I didn't particularly, they were all my friends. They weren't, yeah. I wasn't try, trying to crack on to them or anything. And I just loved it. I loved the challenge of going out in the surf and being in freezing cold water in Victoria, of course. So mm-hmm. it was, I love that risk and challenge. And I played a bit of football with the girlfriends' teams and all of that stuff. We played once for Cheltenham High School. We had a, a girls' team that played another another school and I played Ruck Rover and that was my favourite position, Ruck Rover, but going on and kicking goals. That's what I love yep. to do. So, Lee Matthews, guess what? I've played football. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're going to come um, to that. And, and so, really, netball was that netball was the sport that chose me in many respects. I think I started it because of friendship, more so. 
And it, I was just good at it from the start. It combined all the talents I guess I had. You know, I was fit and fast and, and I did little laughs as well, I forgot to say, and I love little laughs too, especially mm. high jump, although I could only scissor, so I went out quickly because I couldn't do the Fosbury flop. I wasn't quite coordinated enough. And I also did calisthenics, which, you know, in many respects is, yes, it's very girlified, but it's also structured, disciplined. It's actually quite culturally diverse. If you think about it, we used to do lots of dancing from different countries and you'd learn about mm those countries and the costumes, etc. So I thought that was actually not too bad. And then Netball chose me. I played with Vic Churches for a number of years and didn't even know about the big wide world of state teams until I was trialling for the 21 and under team. I became pregnant at the age of 18 and I had to pull out of the final trials for the 20, 21 and under team. So I knew you could be pregnant and play Netball. I didn't know it at the time, but you can. Mm. So mm. that put a bit of a, a stop to netball at that time. And it was also coincided with me transitioning to university from year 12. So lots going on. It's an mm. amazing thing, isn't it? You look back on it and you go, how in the hell did I do all of that? But um, you did. I was the last in the litter as well. So, you know, my parents had sort of checked out of parenting by then which is fair enough, you know, they'd, they'd been young too as parents. So I, I, I felt okay about that. I remember saying to my nan, I wish mum and dad were here because my nan was sort of the half babysitting us. Yep. And I said, well, I wish they were here. And she just said, you know, Lisa, you're okay. You just, you're, you're fine. Just, just do your thing. Get yourself organised. My nan was pretty self-sufficient as a woman, so which I didn't realise at the time, but, you know, you realise when you look back at her how important she was as well. She was a working she was a working woman her whole life, mm. as well as raising five children on her own. So you mm. I forget all those things. <laughs> from, from listening to that, there's no doubt that sport chose you. You know, you were immersed in it, surrounded by it. And I think particularly with your parents and your dad being involved as president of the cricket club, you you have these role models, which of course we know are, are so important to us. So so for you, leadership in the context of sport mm. sounds like it was it was just a very natural. This is what I'm going to do, and this is the natural progression that, yeah, that, that you're it, going it to make. It certainly was. Like I I did start doing medicine at Monash, and the main main reason I chose to do medicine was because my teachers said you can't do teaching you you know no you, you're going to be you're going to get higher marks you've got to go into mm. medicine and so then I tailor-made my uh, year 12 to get into medicine so that I did I probably did less maths than I should have if I'd been a you know, I am a maths teacher now, so I probably should have done <laughs> more mathematics. But I did, you know, the normal science course to get you into medicine and started it and it was a shock. It was a cultural shock for me to see so many, well, no one from high schools. There was 15 of us, I think. So that was a shock. And to see so many from one school, which was Mount Scopus Jewish School, I just, yeah, it was a foreign place for me. It it wasn't easy. And then, find you know, finding out I was pregnant, I ended up discontinuing. But they really wanted me back. And it, I remember the, the kindness that I was given by the dean at the time. And it was pretty scary. But he just said, yeah, no, definitely come back and we'll have a place for you. And so, but I didn't go back. I I chose to go in the direction of teaching because that actually was in my DNA. That's where my mother's side of the family are all teachers and I've discovered that since 
having a look at our ancestry from Scotland. So it's in my DNA. So I stuck true to that. I, I think I would have been a very good doctor, though. Hmm. I, I can probably handle myself very well with medical people because of my science background. And that's another part of why I guess my coaching's always had that part of me that accepts and works very closely with medical staff around world-class programs. I've always been very keen and I question and I I don't take their bossiness too much. And they've all been women and, you know, great physios as well. And they have, you know, I've had some male physios as well, but the women doctors have been awesome. Like Dr. Sue Mm -hmm. White, who's now you know, our VIS chief medical officer, you know, she sort of grew up with me. She was doing, she was the first one to go through the sports registrars course, the very first course. Mm -hmm. So that was big. And that's what I wanted to do when I first started university. So she came a bit later than me. And then having Dr. Sophie Armstrong work with me with the diamonds and we're still texting each other and she's just had a, a baby and combining that with her her medical work as a, a sports physician as well. It's just inspiring that they, this is actually what women can do and they can do it with, you know, supportive partners and they work together as a team and, you know. Let's talk about what you when, when, when we bump up against stuff. So yeah, for the listeners, this is around when you first realised that gender inequality and inequity in sport existed. Uh, it started when I had my daughter and I had to play. Well, I didn't have to play. I chose to play netball at the highest level at, the mo- at that time. I was playing, you know, state league and representing Victoria and then Australian squad, of course, getting no money for it. Mm-hmm. And I butted up against my partner at the time then who was getting paid to play football down at a country club in the Mornington Peninsula. That's when it, it struck home in the heart, actually, not just financially but just the total inequity. I was playing, you know, the top level you can play in Australia, <laughs> like an Australian yep. cricketer. Mm-hmm. And he was playing, you know, first football on Mornington Peninsula. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah, and, and, but, but there's more than just the pay inequity, though. So he's getting paid to pay in a, a play in a country league. You're not getting paid pay at so the therefore, highest level. Therefore, that was what, you know, that was more important. Yeah, so it's the prioritisation. What would you say now? So let's imagine, and Julia Gillard does this in her podcast, a podcast yeah. of one's own. Imagine that you were the boss of everything right now. In this and for this particular situation about pay inequity as well as prioritisation inequity, what would your call to action be for sporting administrators right now? It's very simple. It particularly the AIS, where all the sports, Olympic sports, you know, they're paid for out of our taxpayer money. That mm-hmm. that should be transparent. Exactly what all the head coaches of all the national programs get. That's it, and they all get the same. Mm-hmm. So transparency. And equity. Yep. Doesn't matter if you're coaching basketball, netball, rugby, athletics, whatever it may be, a head coach is. And Good. then there needs to be much more transparency about the criteria and credentials for those positions. And there has to be a fair income program, a bit like Emily's list was here in Victoria for Labor. Yep. I think yep. it worked so well. And Julia is a, an example of that. It ha- there has to be some quotas. We have to have a target. Mm. It can't 
that's what sport's all about, targets. Mm, I mean, absolutely. And I know that speaks to the patriarchal system in a way, but it is the reality of sport. It is measured. Mm-hmm. You do mm. come first or second. And if you do come second, you're a failure. Mm. I would also say that there's a nuanced approach in, and I have written about it before, that, and if I, if I talk about it in the, or the two games that you and I both love, netball and football, Australian rules football, if you put on the field or on the court all goal shooters or all full forwards, you're not going to get the right result, are you? You actually need to have a bunch of different people with different skills. Yes, and the problem is in in the government bureaucracies, we just keep picking people that are the same as the bosses, and it's a real problem. You know, we need to start our selection processes with much more, just do blind selections, um, Mm. blind interviews. I think it's, you know, we need to be much more objective about it. We're not, and we need to recognise that. Confirmation bias is just that it is there. It's it's mm. human and it's a part of a protective nature of what we do. For a start, at least have some balance on your selection panels. Yep. You know, and I mean real balance. That means different points of view, exactly like you've just described there. You don't have all goal shooters. What's the point? You're not going to get a good decision out of that. We've mm. actually we've studied decision-making and selection, and I brought this to the McKinnon Prize political committee that I was on a couple of years ago, and I must have been too strong because I haven't been asked back again. It was with <laughs> Julia and John Howard, but I was calling to account a few of the the blokes on it about sport okay so I was the sporting person that came on the year before I think they had one of the cricketers so I said to them look we've done the research in this my my um, performance analyst has done it about selection because we really wanted to make sure we got selection right to the Australian Diamonds Mm. and we did discover that three people is the right number to make decisions and that Yes, there sometimes has to be the captain's call or the coach's call because they're yep. the ones that have to wear the decision. Mm-hmm. But they don't know what they don't know. That's why you have selectors who help you to make that decision. I don't know mm. why we don't do that. The oh, I'm surprised too. too because in corporate Australia, of which I've been a member of for a long, long time, uh, we move to gender-balanced panels and skills diverse skills-based panels for selection, particularly for senior roles, mm. quite some time ago. And I was very surprised when I really started to dig into sport some, some years ago about some of those what are now relatively run-of-the-mill mature processes in corporations don't exist in in sport or in the ecosystem that sits around sport, which it, it does. It surprises me that that maturity is not there and I wonder why that is and I think it's perhaps because the homogenous environment is not evolving and not innovating. In Canberra, I can tell you because I talk to people there who work for Sport Australia or or organisations like that. It is simply jobs for the boys. Mm. They've, they've got their own club up there as well that go riding together. They've all been bureaucrats and they just pick each other all the time. And it's sad because they're not getting... Australia's missing out. This is the whole yep. thing, Michelle. My, my contention to, and this is to Lee Matthews as well, who said I was not on the 92 people on the list for the Collingwood Football Club job because I hadn't played the game. You know, you're ignoring 50% of your talent. As a coach, you should know that you need to assess all of the talent available. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like not a netball, not 
recognising and doing enough to make welcome our Indigenous communities into our sport Mm -hmm. because we are missing talent. Not only the moral implication and all of that social part of which Nepal stands as a bit of a beacon, but really, is it? Is the question? If it's well, not, it's not being inclusive. Well, I, I would certainly say that there's been enough discussion, enough public discourse about netball being relatively white and relatively homogenous. So I think you know there is absolutely work to be done there, and I think that Netball Australia are starting to address that. But but I guess I want to come back to to you and 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 again this comparison. And because this interview series is about the lived experience of women compared to men. Now, I I do apologise in advance. I'm taking a very binary approach to gender here. So, well, what, what have you experienced as a senior elite level coach and what what has been expected of you that's not expected of your male peers? Yeah, that's a really hard one for me to answer because I come from a sport that basically women are the coaches. Mm-hmm. So it's very different and that's part of the pro- I think that's part of the problem that netball has when we have those higher level discussions with government and sports industries etc they sort of look upon us as a bit of a misnomer and a secret women's business almost and okay. actually netball has cultivated that in a in I think a and not a constructive way, particularly a few years ago. I thought we were being too hand-in-hand with the blokes at that time instead of standing on our own and saying, no, we know what we're doing is, you know, for our sport and we don't need the hand-holding. We can make it. How did that manifest itself, though, Lisa? So what's an an example of how that... For example, like, you know, if there was a commercial officer's role available, we have to go to the AFL to get that person because they have to be better because, you know, it's bigger and, you know, there's and a male will be better at that job because they'll have more more contacts. Okay. Hmm, interesting. Okay. That's pretty much it. Bored at the moment of Netball Australia, it is, it's actually more men than women. Now, why is that? it wasn't yeah, so like the, that 10 years ago. No, it wasn't. But but I I have also been very overt about saying I think Netball Australia perhaps 10, 15 years ago was also homogenous in that it had a certain type of person on it. She was she was a woman. She was an ex-player um and and an ex-player at an elite level and it was it was exclusive and i and i do know that the diversification of the board has been extraordinarily useful uh, for netball however to your point what is happening now is there becoming are you simply replacing one level of uh, you know homogeneity with another level and Absolutely. you know yes. and, and that's it's yes. a little bit like boards in Australia. As a board member in Australia, the VIS board, now I've only ever been on one board, mm. but and it is not necessarily as culturally diverse as it should be, perhaps. I mean, you know, Shelley Ware would probably, you know, say she's obviously flying the flag of, of Indigenous Australia and she does it really, really well and, you know, has, has, has influenced change on our board mm. already. Mm. Amazing. And, and the board is run by a very strong woman. She, and Natalie does things in a very, very interesting way. She's from a she has a marketing background, but I found her leadership to be again inspiring, and has got us through an extremely rough period. 
and she's managed to get extra funding for us through Mm. her networks and her contacts. It is a board that really at its core, I believe, serves the VIS. I'm not certain in corporate Australia that the boards actually serve the right people, and I think you've seen that in all the scandals, etc. They're very self-serving. Are they actually serving who they're meant to be? Which is the you know the company, the employee, the employees, and the shareholders. At the end of the day, mm. you've got to make money. The point that I was making was yeah. around that that replacing one level of of sameness with another, and and what we're seeing in you know that there are there are certainly great strides being made towards more gender diversity on boards in Australia. But if you look at the ASX boards and the women on the ASX boards, it's a bunch of white women. Typically, and, and, and from a certain class. and from a certain background, absolutely. But they're also the same women who are multi-purposed across a lot of boards. So, so again, I think you know when it comes to sport, I want sport leaders, and this is absolutely about solutions. Start looking at the homogeneity of your boards, of your yes, leadership teams, absolutely. And if they now start this... to do that, then all of a sudden, these sort of issues will not be as big a deal because, as I said in my article with. Uh, Jessica O'Halloran, the issue with women in coaching in the AFL starts with Richard Goiter. He is the chair of the AFL Commission. He can get the job done if he wants yep. to. And and I just, I from from the actions I see, and that's all I can see, I don't know Richard personally. I do know of him through a colleague of mine who is up in high up in the executive of Coles who says he's a good person. Well, I'll say, mm-hmm. well, let's see it. So that's a nice segue to my next question for you. And I'm going to read a quote that you gave me for my first report uh, into women in sport or inequity in sport. Oh, oh, we're doing history now. This- we are doing history. So you, you said research is critical to assist in affecting positive social change. Research that aims to increase the number of women in Australian sports is to the benefit of Australian sports and can only lead to an improved and more inclusive society. One day... I hope to be known for my expertise in coaching, not as a woman in sport coaching. When is one day going to happen, Lisa? Again, my discussion with my manager who works in a very male-dominated environment, we both think it's going to take at least another two years for the AFL to come to be... And they're the litmus test, really. The Mm -hmm. NRL seems to be, and I know this sounds quite odd because Jessica O'Halloran would say differently, the NRL oddly welcomes women much more than AFL into the top echelon. That has been my experience too, my understanding. If you watch the commentators, Hannah Hollis, Yvonne Sampson, Lara Pitt, they still carry, you know, there's still a lot of misogyny there, but the three of them handle themselves so well and they're welcomed. It's just not the same in the AFL. It is, it's almost schoolboyish behaviour that it Mm. just, it's almost the point where it's cringeworthy and it's, I don't know when it's going to change. I really don't. Mm. Well, the problem is it's an Indigenous game that's not played on a global level, so they just don't have anything to compare themselves to. That's the problem. Mm. Mm. And yet, as I said on 3AW the other day, they all go overseas and watch other sports, all the head coaches, Mm. and Mm. they've got 
excellence all around them here in Australia with Olympic sports and netball and rugby union and, you know, so forth and so on. There, there is a this concept of one day. I, I like the fact that you've said two years because I, you know, the work that I do around gender equality and inequality and, of course, I look at OECD, the World Health Forum, um, all of the, the global stats, United Nations, you know, and, and for true gender equality across political, social, health, economic, you know, we're, we're still a hundred odd years away, depending on which report you look at. So for you yeah. to say, I think we're two years away, gives me a, a beacon of hope. So I'm going to grab hold of that. Good. Hope is is really, really important because we women in sport become can become very despondent and tired. And you and I were talking off air about it's a grind to mm. keep tackling uh, gender inequality in sport. But women like you, high-profile women, you have a lot of attention and we look to you, fairly or unfairly, we look to women like you to to buoy us and motivate us because we we want to stop the attrition from women in sport at every level. We know that girls drop out of sport. I'm glad to see the conversations about uniforms going on. Oh, yeah, we see yeah. that girls drop out at sport yeah. in, in you know some very vulnerable times. Women drop out at certain points. But women will drop out of coaching, of administration, what have you, when they're simply bumping up against that stuff all the time. So I would like you to give your tips for maintaining your resilience because as an advocate for women in sport and, and there are so many of us, but gee whiz, let's let's share some tips here about how do we maintain our resilience. You've got to have your positive network. And Michelle, you are obviously one of those people for me who Thank I you. message when I'm having a, a down day or... And then the other person I think of is my daughter. I mean, Carly was worried last week. She texts me. She said, are you okay? And I said, yes, darling, what's wrong? She goes, oh, you know, all the stuff. Because she reads all the social media. I said, don't read that stuff. Like, I don't read it. That's the other tip I've got. You've got Mm. to block everybody who's negative. There's just no point. Why waste your time reading, and I call it, hit? And I've said this to the Diamonds, you know, as well. The same thing. We had this issue five years ago when Gretel Tippett was overseas with us and it was her first test series and many people didn't like Gretel one bit because she was different. She'd come from Mm. a basketball background. She was not a traditional goal attack. She's a young kid for God's sake and people were just being so horrible to her. And look, we handled it as well as we could, but at the end of the day, each individual has to be exercising their responsibility and duty to themselves to not do that to themselves. Mm. Don't read it. It's just not worth it. It's not. The, it's too much of a waste of time. Read inspiring literature, inspiring people, watch inspiring people. Do, mm. do those good things to yourself. Self-care is absolutely critical, particularly in lockdowns and everything else. Like yeah. how you can't look after others if you're not looking after yourself. It's yes, really good advice. It's selfish. But it's selfish not to do it. Well, I think it's. It, we would only say society says it's selfish for women to do that because you know we are meant to be nurturing Care. and looking after others and all this kind of. Yeah, and I call I, I call BS on that. I know plenty of men that are really top level carers, mm-hmm. and they do it in their authentic way, beautifully as well. Mm-hmm. Like I'm very fortunate to have wonderful, wonderful friends who are men. And mm-hmm. and in my family, very, very fortunate. 
So the message there for us is to uh, eliminate negativity. And and we know from research that continuing negativity has a physical impact on you. So, you know, don't read the comments. And I remember Emma Ray saying to me from the, you know, the outer sanctum, Michelle, don't read the comments. So don't read the comments. Surround yourself with a cheer squad of of positive people. Read inspiring things. Lean on, lean on those of us who are there to to be linked on. Um, that have had a lived journey like yours, which you have, you've lived a similar life to me. And so it is very important to me to hear your your encouragement. It's also important for me to hear, like a young person who works at Leading Teams, Anna, mm. she, she's very, very happy I'm doing what I'm doing. And that's important for her yeah. because, you know, she's you know, a young gay woman who struggles with things too. And she's trying to coach train rules. Yep. And I'm encouraging her because I think it's great for her to do that. So the mentoring Likewise. side of a one-to-one level is so important. Keep doing yep. that because that's actually, that's what kept me going through the dark mm-hmm. times way back. I had wonderful women around me to mentor me, support me, get me through. So... Let's switch it to the system now. So I, I, if I'm a sporting administrator, which I am currently in hiatus, but I'm a sporting administrator. Yes. So sporting administrators, leaders, what do we need to do to keep women in sport to help them with this self-care? But we want women to stay playing or participating yep. at every level. What do we need to do? You know, what's the call to action? I think for we have to have a conversation with them. I'm thinking about my own club here in Avoca and if I had a magic wand, I'd go down there and I'd maybe start coaching or being the president of the club and I'd say we're not paying AFA, we're not playing Australian rules players anymore. We're not we're not paying anybody. The netballers because and I'll tell you the reason why, because the netballers are fitter, faster and more skillful than the footballers. I don't understand. Mm. It is just simply it's ridiculous. If you if a corporate person saw that you were paying people who couldn't complete their work or whatever as contractors and the others are doing a magnificent job, I think I know who I'd be paying and keeping mm. on staff. Yep. So it's a club. It's a community club. Don't pay them. Stop it now and, mm-hmm. and have a conversation about how we could do things differently in our family club. Because, of course, football clubs embraced netball because they wanted women in their clubs. They knew they were dying without it. 100%. So at the end of the day, it's about the whole club coming together, about what what are the values of Avoca Football Netball or Netball Football Club that really matter the most? What's the purpose? Mm -hmm. So it's a cultural change process. And the administration have to lead it and have to be humble and you can still say, you can still be reverent to history and all of those things, but you can say enough is enough. Mm. We're going this way. We're doing it for this reason. And look after those people in your club. Mm. Take care of them. Mm. You know, the husband and wife on the gate who do the gate here, they're just gorgeous people. You know, we talk to them every time we go in and they want to have a chat. And that's that's what community sports all about. It's about relationships, connection to the community, serving the community, going back to service instead mm. of me 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 and take take take. 
Mm. Like it's it's really interesting that you bring that up because even though I'm not on the board of Williamstown Football Club anymore, they remain my club. And and in fact, I'm doing some work with the leadership, the women's uh, team, yeah. their, their leadership group at the moment, and uh, which is filling my cup up a lot. But if I think about that club, we have, you know, there, there are so many of those people that are part of the community and it is part of who they are. And I think from a I, I I really appreciate you giving me that that kind of view of how do we innovate and innovation mm. is also about saying yeah we can be respectful of the past yeah. but what's also blocking us from yes. a really equitable future and perhaps in these community clubs and let's face it the, the elite sports people represent about one to two percent of exactly. all Australians like what about so, the I call the concrete mixers in your team. If every team's yep. got them and they don't get paid yep. as much as everyone else, well, how about we all don't get paid? And how about yep. we provide, instead of ploughing our money into player payments, how about we plough it into the club, provide really good food for the players yep. after training, have, you know, wonderful people come in and professionally develop the, the team and yep. all of those surrounding things that you could re- you could actually spend your money, you could flip it upside down, you could mm. be like an afterpay has ended up being, you know. <laughs> I mean, look at it. Whatever way it's been started or whatever's happened, at the end of the day, it's been a successful Australian startup company because they've thrown out the old script. Absolutely. They are not doing it the way BHP does it. Mm, they are doing mm. it completely differently. Now, I'm not and saying- I think there's a there's a great lesson in that for sporting administrators and it is it comes back everything comes back to leadership and leadership's not about winning winning a popularity contest it is also about Matt saying we need to and if you think you know I I always think about good to great um Jim Collins good to great stood the test of time to be leading edge you've got to keep innovating and innovating and innovating you do and we haven't we haven't changed the model so I really I appreciate that Lisa and we don't have to just innovate in that way we can innovate Mm. in how we have relationships in our football clubs we can become a gay pride club if we want to Mm. like why not who cares Mm. like Mm. i'm just saying that's an example absolutely Avoca can become the pyrenees beautiful wine football netball club of the whole country the best in the country actually Mm. we could have wine tastings there there's all sorts of exciting things that could happen because the club accepts its responsibility to the community and i think then uh, building on that and that that's going to happen when you have different people, when you have a cross-section of the community, a cross-section of humanity coming together to say, how do we do this even better? I really want to come in. It does not mean we don't we're not respectful of the past. Oh, no. We have we legacies. We all those trainers Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Yep. I bet they would say, oh, thank yep. God Michelle's come yep. in and cleaned out all those rude words starting with W. <laughs> Truly, I reckon they'll say it. I reckon the folk up here on the gate will say, oh, thank God I don't have to stand on the gate asking for money all the time because I've got to help pay these players who just, Mm. yeah, who Mm. go home straight after the game. Mm. I couldn't believe it when I still heard it was happening. Yeah. But again, it's that difference. The nipples are elite compared to, no, Mm. it's just, it's Mm. wrong. It shouldn't be happening. That That was happening 30 years ago. Why is it happening now? We know why. 
Well, we know, and I'm going to call it, it's the homogenous folks who are still sitting at the leadership tables. So so for you, a woman, and, and I'm going to wrap it up because we'll, we will talk yep. forever otherwise, but so for someone who started off in her backyard pool admiring Shane Gould, and I've got to say, Colette, so did I, and I was a fish as well. So you and I have got so many, we've talked about this before, parallel lives, but starting out admiring Shane Gould, moving into netball, attempting medicine, moving into administration and coaching, and now always butting up against those very gendered expectations of this sport does this, this women do that, but still continuing to, to fire back and challenge us to think more deeply and think more broadly about the role of women in sport. Keep on keeping on, Lisa, but, but, but I will say when it comes to resilience and tenacity, you have it in spades. And I, I, I'm honoured that I'm part of the cheer squad that can help you when those dark times come because they do come. But the call to action here for sporting administrators is please pay attention to the lived experience of all women in sport because we haven't done it easy. We are there because we love it and we know what sport can deliver for society and we want to be part of that. So pay attention to us. Don't dismiss us and expand your horizons by having some different people around the table. So Lisa Alexander, thank you. We could go to the moon. Unbelievable. Netball on the moon. There you go. There's a there's a Netball challenge versus for the aliens. The aliens versus <laughs> love it, Lisa Alexander. Thank you very thank much you. for your time. I've enjoyed learning from you as always. And for folks who who want to talk more to me or to Lisa, you know where to find mm. us because we are two women who are very determined to make an impact and in a in a very very positive way. So, Lisa, thanks very much. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that you can gain a lot of insights. And and importantly, take action wherever you may work in sport. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating. It really helps to spread the word. And of course, please do share this episode with your friends, with your colleagues, and with your network of people in sport, because together we can close the leadership gender gap.